All right. Well, today we finish our summer series in the Psalms uh, by looking at Psalm 32. So if you have a copy of God's Word with us, or with you, um, if you could turn to Psalm 32 this morning. Hear the reading of God's Word for you today. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. For through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would be at work in us. Lord, we come before your word. I pray that we come before it humbly. We come before it sitting under your word, letting your word speak to us and speak through your spirit. Would your spirit fill me to proclaim your truth with, with power and with grace and, true, uh, and, and just um, clarity? Would you unite all our hearts to fear your name, to hear that truth, and to submit to the truth and to understand the blessedness of being forgiven. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it it reaches all aspects of life. And we ask that in this particular one that you would show us more the way of the righteous. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? That's a question I I think any of us who are honest have probably asked or wondered about at some point in time in life. What do I do with my guilt? How do do I deal with it? R.C. Sproul wrote a little book called What Can I Do With My Guilt? And in it, he draws out that question. He does it in wonderful R.C. Sproul ways and the implications of it. And it's an insightful little book, and, and one insight he pointed out was that in reality, the, the question itself of what can, I, what, what, what can you do with your guilt is one that if you did that in a, in a courtroom, any eternity, any a, attorney, not eternity, any attorney would throw that question out because it presupposes guilt already. And as R.C. Sproul could do so well, he equated it like this. He said, this question is something like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? 
If a man answers that question by saying yes, he's admitting that he once beat his wife, and if he answers no, he's saying that he's still beating his wife. No matter how he answers the question, he's admitting to some kind of guilt. You know, the question about beating your wife is very clearly a trap, but the question about guilt isn't, because it's very safe to determine and to state we are all guilty. We are all guilty. We've all broken the law of God. Even if someone doesn't necessarily believe in God, they violated God's laws. And even if they don't go there, they violated their own moral standards. They know that they're guilty. And so the question still remains, what do we do with that guilt? What do we do with it? What do we do to deal with our sin? How do we reckon with it? Psalm 32 gives us the answer. We confess. We repent. Which goes against our natural bent, right? Our natural bent is to try and make it right, to try and work it off. But confession is what we're called to. Confession and turning to the Lord is our only hope. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, our thoughts are, i got to work this off. i got to make this right. I've got to do the right thing. His ways are different. He calls us to return to Him, to confess and repent, and God will abundantly pardon. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15 and paragraph 4, sets forth the, the grim reality of sin. But also with it, it sets forth the amazing nature of grace. It says this, it says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So it doesn't matter the sin, it deserves condemnation. It also says, So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter the size of our sin, it will bring condemnation but it also doesn't matter the size of our sin. If we truly repent, there is forgiveness in Christ. That is a glorious truth. And this is what Psalm 32 is about. It is a psalm. It encourages and instructs us to go to God with our guilt, to go to God with our sin, because that is the only place we will ever have it properly dealt with. There is no other place. Traditionally, um, Psalm 32 has been classified as a penitential psalm, uh, one of penitence, one of repentance and, and forgiveness and confession. But you know what? It's unlike something like Psalm 51, which is another psalm of David that very much fits that category that is this confession of sin. Uh, this psalm, actually, it, it more so recounts what David went through. And I think it has much more of a feel of a wisdom psalm. It is giving us great wisdom in how to live. Now, we don't really know when this psalm was written in David's life, but I think it was very, it's very safe to assume it was written after he wrote Psalm 51 and after all the, the issues that led to that. 
Um, it reflects on the psalmist's life. It reflects on what he learned and what that means. And as it does this reflection, you see two distinct sections. Uh, verses 1 to 5 are David speaking of the good of repentance. So that's our first point, the good of repentance. And then verses 6 to 11 are guidance to repentance. He gives guidance in regard to repentance. So there's the good of repentance and the guidance of repentance. And my, my hope, my, my prayer this morning is that we would all be encouraged to go to God often, to go regularly in prayer, in confession and repentance, and learn to experience the blessedness which David recounts for us here. So look again at the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These first two verses are a statement of blessing. Okay, it just starts off with blessed are. Okay, there, there are overtones reminiscent of, of Psalm 1 with this um, that, that demonstrates that those who are truly blessed are the righteous, the righteous who live according to and meditate upon and, and love God's instruction. And so the blessed person in Psalm 32 is shown to be one who has their sin covered, the one who's forgiven. Now, if you look at the language here that David uses, he uses three terms for what we would in general call sin in English language. He uses transgression, sin, and iniquity. Okay, he uses three terms to kind of basically cover the bases in many ways. And transgression, those are acts of rebellion against God, uh, against the law of God, specifically infringing upon that. Sin is the, the broadest term that we have in Scripture quite often. It's a general offense against God. And then iniquity can be both the guilt, but it's also a distorting or a twisting of the right path. Um, you know, oftentimes a, we pray that He would make our, our path straight because we have often distorted it and twisted it. We've committed iniquity in that way. Um, so, as I said, He's covering all the bases uh, and, and every aspect of what we would call sin and, and telling us He's telling us here, he says that, that blessed, that, that happy, that, that joyous is the one who has that sin forgiven. Okay, that is language of atonement, of having sin covered, of having it dealt with, um, having it dealt with in full by another, by the Lord. He uses the word forgiven. It's, it is lifted off. It, it's taken away from us. It's removed. He also uses covered in the sense that it's concealed from sight. It's no longer to be seen. It's, it's not there. It's not as a, as a record for us. And only God can do this. Only He can truly cover our sin. And if you look down at verse 5, David recounts his confession, and in that he said, I did not cover my iniquity. And that language, hearing I did not cover my iniquity, one, it's, it's not only reminiscent of our own lives where we try to do that, but it's actually suggestive of Genesis 3 and the fall with Adam and Eve. Because what happened in that fall, when they, when they fell and they recognized that they were naked, they knew that they sinned, what did they try and do? They tried to cover their own sin. They tried to cover their nakedness by sewing together fig leaves. And it didn't work. It didn't work at all. They knew they were guilty, and, and, and that, that sewing together of those fig leaves was nothing but a feeble human attempt to deal with sin. It was our natural bent, our natural reaction of, I've got to do something to cover this up, to make this right. 
but we cannot cover our own sin. And Paul picks up this language, this language of atonement and, and forgiveness, and emphasizes what David wrote in, 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 in verse 2, where that, that the Lord counts no iniquity. Romans 4, verses 6 to 8, or actually really 5 through 8, uh, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Three times he uses that term, not count, or, or will count them as righteous, or regard them, or reckon them. That's justification by faith. That's being declared righteous by another. It's understanding that the Lord forgives sin. We don't work for that forgiveness. We confess and acknowledge our sin to God, and He reckons. He counts us as righteous because of His grace and mercy, not by our works. It's not what we have done, and that is arguably the greatest blessing one can ever experience is true forgiveness of sin, freedom from our sin, freedom from our guilt. So obviously, this this forgiveness by the Lord, it is an occasion for joy. Sometimes I love the way the the NLT, the New Living Translation, writes this in verse 2. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. It's not just blessed, but what joy is this for those whose record is cleared? But then that last line, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Folks, this blessing is for those who are honest. And not just generally honest, it's not like you're George Washington and you cannot tell a lie or something like that, but but you're actually honest about your sin, about the presence of sin in your own life, that you, you don't deceive yourself into thinking that everything is good when in fact they're not. Consider 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We live in complete honesty because the fact is we all sin and we have to come to grips with that. Because what we come to next in Psalm 32 is the experience of one who denied that, who did seek to deceive themselves in many ways. Look at verses 3 and 4. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is recounting here, the pain of dishonesty, the pain of deception, and an unwillingness to repent. David was silent about his sin, and he felt it, and he was silent about it for quite some time. You see, dealing with sin by denying its presence is a really poor strategy. Imagine dealing with a life-threatening disease or a broken bone by denying that either exists. There's no healing. Uh, You'd rightly be seen as unwise at best and an absolute fool 
at worst. You know, we know David's experience of denial of sin was, the, the big one was when he sought to cover up his taking advantage of Bathsheba of taking her to be his when he, when he saw her bathing on the rooftop and she became pregnant, and he sought to cover that up. But his, his first option didn't work out for the cover-up, so he decided and said, well, I'm just going to kill her husband. I'm going to have him killed in battle, and everything will be, be better and all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, but but as, you, as you see David's life, and we don't have time to recount it all, what you see is that the pleasure of that first sin faded quickly because he just got into this web of how do I try and cover it up? How do I try and deal with it? See, that pleasure doesn't last. Now, he started to experience that, that guilt and denial, the guilt of the denial, and he was experiencing the burden, and he felt it both physically and emotionally. He states that his bones wasted away. He suffered physical effects. I remember when I first came to this presbytery, to this region, and at our quarterly presbytery meetings, um, one pastor would continually pray for another who had walked away from the faith uh, by committing an affair. And this one guy continued to pray, Lord, I pray that he would feel it physically. He's praying Psalm 32, and about two years later, that person came back and confessed to presbytery. It was a beautiful thing, but one of the things he said is he's like, I had never been more physically sick and in pain than I had for the years I lived in denial. It was a complete illustration in real life of Psalm 32. Hey, we, we will experience pain in our rebellion, in our denial. And not only physically, but David says he also he groaned day and night. He was emotionally in distress why was he in such distress? Well, because the text says, the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. The Lord's hand was heavy upon me. The Lord is not hands off with his children. He, he brings back his wayward sheep. The Lord was pursuing David and, and making him aware of what he was doing. It was, a good, it, was, it was goodness and mercy, but it was a severe mercy to David. And David got to the point where his strength evaporated. It was like a dried-up piece of fruit sitting outside on a hot summer day, just completely sapped of all strength. You know, if you've ever wrestled with someone bigger than you, and they just put all their strength upon you, and maybe even just lay down on top of you, and you're trying to get up, and you're trying to fight it, you get sapped quickly. Or think about just going to the beach for an afternoon or the whole day, and you come back and you're like, how can I be so tired? It just saps you. And David said, that was his experience all the time. He was sapped. He, his strength was gone because the Lord's hand was continually upon him. But then we come to the beauty of verse 5. To, to David coming to the point of realizing his sin, and it illust illustrates the truth of Proverbs 28, 13 which says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
So he recounted what happened. Verse 5 again, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He acknowledged, he confessed, he repented. I love our shorter catechism that we use as as a church and as as a body, but in particular, question 87. It asks this, it says, what is repentance unto life? And here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a grace from God, whereby a sinner, so all of us, out of a true sense of his sin, so understanding our sin, not denying it, seeing the the, the offense it is against God, out of a true sense of our sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So not only sees how bad that sin is, but sees the mercy of God in Christ. Does with grief and hatred of that sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So repentance is not just confess it and then just keep doing it again over and over and over and over again, but really pursuing obedience but confessing it because we see that God is merciful, that God has shown His mercy and His grace for us in Christ. And it was because of the grace of God that David began to cl- catch a glimpse of the nature of his sin. It was because of the mercy of God. He'd seen God's work. He came to realize that he couldn't cover his own sin and guilt. He was confronted. God was calling him to confess, and he did. Listen to the words of 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, Nathan was the prophet of God who came to David and confronted him. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's the first, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Can you imagine David after nine months or more Say, saying, finally, he's, he's confronted. He says, I, I, I have sinned against the Lord. And he hears, the Lord has put away your sin. Oh, the relief of that is amazing. He heard the word from the prophet of God that he was forgiven. Now, if you read on, it doesn't mean that there were no consequences to his sin, but he was forgiven. He was not held guilty. Hearing that word of assurance Lord, we don't get, or folks, we don't, we don't give an assurance of pardon after the confession of sin just because it's the, the next thing to, it, it's, we need to hear that word from outside of ourselves, from the truth, from the verity of God's word, that you who are in Christ, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We need to hear that word, to hear so that we don't rely on our feelings our feelings are often deceptive, to hear and to know we're forgiven. And you know what's beautiful in this text, in the psalm as a whole? David has used these three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity, in these first five verses. From this point in the psalm, he never uses another one of those words because he's been forgiven. It's almost like in the structure of the psalm, there's this cathartic relief. There's, there's this breath of just fresh air, this breath of mercy and grace that 
that sin, that transgression, that iniquity has been dealt with. Now from here, though, David turns to the desire to instruct, to give guidance in regard to repentance. He wants people to learn from his missteps. He wants people to not do the same thing. So look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Therefore, based on everything, this is his call. Out of his experience, David has something to teach others. And what he does is he encourages his fellow believers, don't make the same mistake I did. Don't hide your sin. Confess. Repent before you feel the effects. He learned the hard way, and he's really just, he's teaching, and I think he's, he's pleading with the people, please learn from me. Learn from me. There is a better way because God is good. God is our refuge, and he calls us to come to him. David learned so much, and what he experienced was healing in his confession but his attention is now turned outward. He's seeking to care for and shepherd his fellow believers along the right way. He calls on all who are godly, all who are faithful, you could say, to pray. And that term godly, the term godly, it's those who, one commentator wrote, derive their identity not from their own accomplishments, but from God's faithfulness and forgiving them and renewing them. God's character is determinative. Prayer is a way of life for those who know that their own accomplishments, capabilities, and intentions are always inadequate. Bob, can you shut that one door? It is blinding me from out there. Thanks. Just the one closest to you. You know, we don't derive our identity from our own accomplishments but we faithfully rely on the Lord, on who He is. And the word translated godly here, in Hebrew it's the word chasid, uh, H-A-S-I-D, and it's, it's very much related to the word chesed, um, which is God's steadfast love. So the godly are those who are relying on God's steadfast love. All of this is an encouragement, even in the way it's written, to go to the Lord, to do so in a time when He may be found, because the reality is, in the rush, in the, in the midst of the flood of, of despair and, and of sin, folks, prayer and thoughts of God are not really the first thing you're looking to do. In that rush of it all, quite often, we are looking to cover it up. We're looking to do other things. We often turn inward and try to save face and seek to cover up and hide our sin. But if we're in that constant practice of going to Him in prayer, we're much more likely to stop at that point in time and confess. And so David is saying, make this a practice in your life. Make it a habit to pray and seek forgiveness, to keep short accounts with the Lord. As, as we learned in Psalm 19, go to Scripture. Let Scripture seek out your sin. Let, let the Spirit of God work and, and pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Let that be a daily prayer for us. See, David had experienced the grace and compassion and refuge of God. 
Look at how he describes God in verse 7. He says, you are, and then he says, you're a hiding place. You're a preserver in times of trouble. Uh, How much do we need him to be that hiding place for us? And he says, and he's, God is one who surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. The surrounding with these shouts, with God's work, it enables the shouting for joy that we'll see in verse 11, and it's further built upon the, being a, surrounded by the steadfast love of God that we see in verse 10. You see, our shouting for joy that we see at the end of the, 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 the psalm is founded upon God's grace, God's work in our lives. His action is determinative of ours. I was actually just, just this morning reading in Zephaniah, and it was chapter 3. Verse 14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Then listen to verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He clears away our guilt and there's shouts of deliverance. And I really think, especially because of this, some of those shouts of deliverance are His. The Lord delights to deliver His children from their sin and their shame in Christ. He delights to to glorify Himself and to glorify the Son through our forgiveness through our coming to Him in confession and repentance. That is something for us to respond in shouts of joy, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But then we come to verse 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. One question of this text is, who's the speaker? Verse 8, who's the speaker? Is this God instructing the psalmist? You know, there's no quotation marks in the original Hebrew, so we don't know exactly. You have to determine it by context. Or is this David continuing to give guidance to fellow believers? I think it's David. Uh, If you think it's God, I'm fine with that. It's okay. But I think it's David, partly because it follows along so well with what he stated in Psalm 51, 13, where after he recounts his confession and, and seeking to be restored, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David is in many ways fulfilling the vow he did in Psalm 51, and he's instructing and teaching God's people. He's, he's showing them what to continue to do. You see, when, an ex, uh, when a sinner has experienced the renewal of God's grace, then the, 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 the natural reaction is to want others to experience that same thing. And folks, this is not pride on, on David's part when he says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. It's not him saying, hey, look at me, I know exactly what to do. This is, this is, David is not, as one commentator said, he's not presumptuous. The witness is not to the psalmist's own faithfulness and rightness, but to God's faithfulness and God's ability to set things in person's right. The way you should go is not a blueprint for moral perfection, 
but rather consists of the psalmist's own example of humbly confessing one's sinfulness and yielding one's life to God. See, the way you should go is realize you're a sinner and learn to repent. And verse 9 is a vivid illustration of David saying, don't take the hard road, people. Don't be like the stubborn animals who must be directed by discipline and pain. He wants everyone to know that the Lord is committed to His people. He will keep them near Him in the long run. God will not lose any that are His. But as Mark Futado wrote, there is a hard way to be kept near, the way of denial and discipline, but there is also an easy way, the way of confession and forgiveness. David longs for people to not take the hard way, but to take the way of blessing, the way of confession and forgiveness. And then comes the final two verses that, that, that really start off with, with a wisdom summary that's, that's a call, a, a warning, and then this call to rejoice. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now here's something that I think we, we, we have to acknowledge here. And, and I think we know this. Sin can be very pleasurable. It can feel good. Because here's the thing, if it didn't, we probably wouldn't do it that much. If it was painful to sin, we're not going to continue to do it, most likely. But the consequences of sin will hit like a ton of bricks. A little picture of this, I was trying to think of an illustration. Imagine and some of you can here, being allergic to certain foods. But yet they look so delightful. They look so good. And, and, and as you, you just decide, you know what, I'm going to eat it. I'm, I'm just going to go for it. And it tastes wonderful. That first initial taste is great, but then the pain hits. And the sweetness is lost. And your body is feeling the sorrow of that rebellion. See, David has laid out two ways here. Sorrow for the wicked, for those who deny their sin, who go against what God has called us to. And then the second way is an absolute encircling of steadfast love around the one who trusts in the Lord. What what higher experience can there be than to be surrounded by the steadfast love of God? Okay, I didn't hear anything, so there's nothing. There's not a better experience than that. I, I, I know it's, it's hard to, to uh, um, you know, quantify that, but it's, not, it's, it's that quality of life of the steadfast love of God surrounding us. I think it's pretty clear then why David issues a call to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Our forgiveness, our hope, our joy, it rests in Him. It's grounded in the grace and goodness of God. This is a call for the upright in heart. The upright in heart is not those who live perfectly, but those who recognize their sin and confess it and find forgiveness to, to then shout for joy. Forgiveness should never be a humdrum, boring experience in our lives. This is our joy. This is our blessedness that we are forgiven by the God of the universe whom we've offended daily. 
And yet all he says is, come to me, confess, repent, endeavor after new obedience, fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're forgiven. Really? That's what it is. That's our forgiveness. That's our hope. That's our life. Folks, this psalm absolutely advances the theme of this book. The theme of this book is blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. An absolutely imperative, uh, it, it can't be left out aspect of, of taking refuge in God is confession and repentance. You have never taken refuge in God unless you have confessed and repented. But blessed are you who do. That's living the righteous life. I, th- I thought the, the way this commentator put this, he said, to be righteous is not to manage somehow to obey all the rules. Okay, put that out. That's not what righteousness is. To be sinless or to be morally perfect. In fact, as Psalms 32 and 51 suggest, the life of the righteous is pervaded by sin and its consequences. To be righteous is to be forgiven. To be open to God's instruction, to live in dependence upon God rather than self. In short, to be righteous is to be a witness to God's grace. To be righteous is to say, I can't cover my own sin. I need Jesus. That is my only hope. That is my only hope. To be righteous is to seek refuge in the righteous one. It is to go to the one who took our sin upon himself so that in him we too can be counted as righteous. That is an amazing exchange. He took the penalty of our sin and gave us His righteous standing before the Father so that we who trust in Him are given all the rights and privileges of the Son of God. We are children of the living God who have trusted in Him, adopted into His family, never to be lost. That is a wonderful mystery that we ought to shout for joy over and that we need to live in every single day. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, be at work in us. Teach us to repent. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to come to you daily, moment by moment, and experience the blessedness of forgiveness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.